Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Happy Easter to you all. Um, you know, this, this Easter is, uh, we, we want to do things a little bit different. You know, Easter is often painted with so many vibrant colors and festivities that we forget how violent of a scene the story was. With the subtitle of our series, The Bloody Cross and the Empty Tomb, we wanted this month to be a month that we're educated and reminded of how aggressive God's love is, how his actions were to us. And we get so passive in our worship that we seem to forget the passion of the cross. We slowly, slowly desensitize ourselves throughout the year. But this month, let's scrape away the pretty colors, the gloss, and knock on our hard hearts so that we can come back to a passionate love and pursuit of God through the remembrance of the cross and the tomb. And everyone is usually happy on Easter mornings, right? It's very rare that you wake up to Easter and being angry, right? It's like you go to church, you have to put a smile on, you have to wear a colorful clothing, right? And uh, I want to ask our team to cut the music in the back um, because this morning, even though we gathered together and it's just, it's so nice to be able to see our families and be able to gather together. Uh, Just this morning in Sri Lanka, there was bombings at churches. And there's over 400 people that were, were injured. Uh, I think that the death count is at 150. Uh, and it was just suicide bombers that went to churches and hotels where churches were meeting. And it, it's so sobering on a church morning, on an Easter morning. I mean, think of how easy it is to just graze over that. And to just meet and make it all about uh, an Easter egg hunt. But how, how can we really do that knowing that, that our faith is being so aggressively attacked? How can we do that when we are talking about this violent story in the Bible, Jesus being brutally crucified and killed, and here today, our brothers and sisters are being killed? And because it's in a, a country that seems far away, we think, oh, that's not really my concern. That would never happen over here. But it's just one, it's just like these steps farther and farther, these steps closer and closer to where uh, our faith is something to be almost scared about. To where if I, when I think about it too, too hard, to know that being, holding a church service that you, you're a target, that's a scary thing to acknowledge. And I don't know if you've ever had to feel afraid for your faith, but I can only imagine the, the trauma and the fear, what, what our brothers and sisters across the world are thinking in their own country. I mean, could you even imagine that? And so I want us to, before we do anything else, can we just pray? God, I ask that you... That you bring justice to the people involved. I ask that you bring healing 
to the lives and the families that were affected. And Lord, we ask that in the most ugliest situation that you be glorified, God, because we know that just as this day represents your resurrection, that those who have died today, that they are alive in you, that they are not dead, but alive in you because we believe in the resurrection because they believe in your resurrection. And so we just ask for your mercies. We ask for your love to be seen and God help us as brothers and sisters in Christ be adamant in our prayers for those across the world. Help us to be sensitive to this subject and that we would not just let it something that goes over our head that seems important right now but doesn't seem important later. That we would be serious in our care and our prayers for those who've been affected by these bombings, those who've been persecuted for your name. We surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want us to start with today is, do you think we've lost the meaning of Easter? Do you think that we've lost the meaning of Easter? And I'll be honest. I gave my life to Christ um, just a little over nine years ago. And I was a senior in high school. I was uh, 17 at the time. And my whole life, I did not know what Easter meant. Even as a kid, I felt puzzled at what the bunnies and the eggs meant. Anyone else? Or did y'all just know? <laughs> y'all, just, y'all just were a step ahead. <laughs> and it wasn't until a year after I gave my life to Christ, when I was in a ministry school, and no one even told me yet. But the church service had a screen that said he rose. And I started thinking, <laughs> I said, wait a minute. Three days, Good Friday. I didn't know what that was about either. I started, I don't know if you guys are smarter than me or not, but I started thinking. And just through decisive reasoning, I concluded, I couldn't prove it yet, but I concluded that Easter was about Jesus' resurrection. Did you guys know that? Okay, okay. well, congratulations. (laughs) That's what it's about. And we get so lost in the festivities. We get so, I mean, isn't the, I've never seen so many colors in my life. You ever been to a traditional church when they're all suited up and it looks like an Easter egg basket right there on stage and they're playing worship. It's crazy. I didn't even know that you could have that many pastel colors at one time without your vision being blurred. It, it's insane. But I want us to just break down Easter real simple. I want us to look at what birth is, what life is, and what death is when it comes to our Christian faith. And when starting off with birth, I'm not talking about our initial birth. I'm talking about our resurrected birth. Just like I said a second ago, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, did you know that that is the foundation of your faith? Then 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. That's pretty messed up, right? It's pretty aggressive. That your faith is useless if Jesus did not raise from the dead. Did you know that in philosophy... Every philosophical system has to be given a point to be proven wrong. 
and that if it doesn't give a point to be proven wrong, then it's not even accepted as a possible system. It's the idea of saying, this is true if this, but if this happens, then this is not true. Does that make sense? That was my elementary grade <laughs> explanation of it. And even though that's, that's, that's not even spiritual, that's secular thought, that if, you, if it does not give a point to be proven wrong, then it's not possible to be an ethical system or a philosophical system. Have you ever heard of the term egotism? Egotism is a belief that every person in the world only does anything for their own benefit. That even me preaching here, it seems selfless, but I'm only doing it so I can earn my way to heaven. That if a firefighter were to risk their life for another human being, is only for the idea of some good work. That if someone... uh, even says a compliment to you, it's so that they could be, they're just really brown nosing so that you think better of them. And see, when you start to think about it, I was like, hey, wait a minute, oh my God. <laughs> but see, just because it, it sounds like that, the reason it is not accepted as a philosophical system is because it doesn't get, allow a point to be proven wrong. There's no way you could prove it wrong. You could always just speculate. Even if you were to say, no, I'm genuinely doing this for others, an egotist would say, no, you're only doing it for, someone, uh, for yourself. See, there's no way to be proven wrong, so it's not accepted as a true philosophical system. Evolution is the same way. It gives no point to be proven wrong. So many other uh, common thought theories that are widely accepted, even relativism. New age relativism that always go to the same way, that every God is the same God, all sin is just the same sin. That it's just a general idea that we're supposed to be walking towards. Well, it can't be proven wrong. And yet so many people accept and believe these kinds of ways. But here Christianity is and says, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're, our faith is useless. We're the biggest dummies there is on the planet. Paul literally says that, not in those simplistic terms, but... He says, we are the most to be pitied out of anybody in the world if Jesus did not raise from the dead. That you should literally feel pity for us. And so the resurrection is the basis of all of our faith. That's why our name is Gravetop Church. Because if Jesus did not stand on top of the grave, then what is it all for? (laughs) And the other part of that side is that Jesus didn't save us just to be better people, but that we were dead and now we're alive in Christ. And that brings us to our other idea of birth is this exchange between Jesus and a person named Nicodemus. And Jesus gives this idea of being born again. In John chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. You got to really put emphasis when it, the Bible says exclaimed. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. See, this, this idea that Jesus is talking about is him literally describing that when you put your trust in Christ, that it's a spiritual thing that happens to where before we're in, in bondage to sin, that we have no choice but to sin in our lives. Every human being is 
in the history of mankind has sinned. And, but when we're born again, we're not born into our sinful DNA, but of a spiritual DNA. And it's almost so simple that it seems like it's, it's childish. That you just, you're given a new heart with new desires. But this, this idea is so simple that it, and it's so amazing that it is. Because this idea that if you're born again, that you have a new heart with new desires. That the whole idea that Jesus is saying is that you're born of the spirit and not of the flesh anymore. And so while before we desire sin and this new life in Christ, when you put your trust in him, you're saved by your beliefs rather than your behavior, because your behavior will never be enough to save you. And so if it's our beliefs, it it's like a it's a new changing. I'm so glad that I gave my life to Christ before I ever stepped foot in a church. Because I was so lucky that I didn't have a bunch of church people saying, well, you got to stop this. You got to stop that. You got to stop this. Because I would have probably got overwhelmed and give up. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Have you ever just been trying so hard to be a goody two-shoes and it just doesn't work? <laughs> but see, what happened is that I gave my life to Christ, just me and the Holy Spirit, and I put my trust in Him through my beliefs. I didn't even know I had to change my behavior. But naturally, my heart started to change. See, no one told me that I should stop doing drugs. It's just all of a sudden I stopped desiring to do drugs. No one told me that I should stop sleeping around. All of a sudden, I, I started wanting to wait for somebody. It's just a natural reaction. And again, it doesn't make sense, but it's like my heart was just made new. My old heart died and my new, my new heart had begun. And the best way I can describe it, as far as like that idea that you no longer desire the things that used to give you pleasure. That doesn't make sense, right? Well, if I like doing dope now, why would I not like doing dope after I put my faith in Christ? It doesn't make sense. You have to do something, right? Well, the best way I could describe this feeling is that, let me just ask you this. Have you ever had a favorite food that you got sick of? I asked a kid this the other day. He said, oh yeah, I ate two boxes of honey buns. (laughs) And after that, I never wanted to eat a honey bun again. So, well, okay, good God. <laughs> and see, that's what it's like with sin in our lives after we put our beliefs in Jesus. That we're given a new heart to where something that was so sweet to us before makes us sick. It's where even me, I used to be a violent person, but now the thought of hurting somebody, even just hurting someone's feelings, makes me sick. I feel so, I feel so bad. So, so uh, just ashamed, even if I just hurt somebody's feelings unintentionally. But before I wanted to belittle people, I wanted to hurt people. But see, something sweets me became bitter. And it's the, the new heart that Jesus put in me. That's the way this born again thing works. Y'all get it? And the, I love that Jesus is a carpenter. Because... I, I think a, a really, just to finalize this analogy, gee, have anyone here seen that movie Instant Family? Yeah, a couple of you guys. Well, it's about these, it's, uh, it's a story about these people who foster kids. And this couple, at the beginning of the movie, they're, they're home flippers. And so the beginning of this movie shows this empty home that's all broken down. 
There's random nests. It, all the walls are tore up. There's, it's dirt everywhere. It just looks filthy. And they go into the home and they're like, oh man, this, this is beautiful. This is amazing. Oh my gosh, look at all the potential here. This is gold. And they're just seeing all the value in this home that was mistreated. And then another couple comes in and they walk in. Oh my gosh, this is filthy. I can't believe you even brought us here. This is disgusting. And they don't see the value in this home. And, the, and the, it shows that beginning scene because it's an analogy of what foster care is like. Is that these kids are like the home, that they've been mistreated. It wasn't their fault that they were neglected. But because of the abuse of others, people can step into their lives and think, man, this is some messed up kid. <laughs> this is a messed up life. But it just takes a special person to see the potential and value that's really there. See, that's what Jesus is like in our lives. Has you ever thought so negative about yourself? Like, man, how could I come to God when I'm such a mess up? I can't get right with God. I, it's going to take me years to do that. I'm going to just stay away from him for, until I can get all my mess together. But see, Jesus is that carpenter that steps into your home. And if you just allow your belief in him, your trust in him to allow him to come in, you don't have to feel ashamed at the things that are broken in your life. But he's this carpenter that comes in and he doesn't tell a building, man, this is a dump. You better fix yourself right now. I'm going to come back tomorrow. And if you're not all in order, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. That's what we think God is like, right? Going to just slam dunk us to hell. (laughs) But it says that it describes Jesus as being this person that comes in, takes his time, and he fixes what is broken. He heals what is hurt. And he heals our sin-sick soul. And he can take the ugliest thing, like myself, and turn it into something beautiful. Now, I'm not trying to say I'm beautiful, but y'all get the idea. There's people that used to know me, and they see how vile and of a wicked person I was. When I tell them, well, now I'm a church planter, they're like, there is a God. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's what God does in our lives. He comes in, and, and I'll be the first one to say, I didn't do anything, but God did the work in me. That's what born again is. That's what birth is. And now let's talk about life. Look at your neighbor and say life. You got to say it mad. Life. Because it's Easter. You know, that's this idea of what our life is like after we become believers. We usually think it's this tightrope that we're trying to walk on. And it's this balancing act. And if you misstep once and fall back, you have to start all the way over. But life is not like a tightrope. And this, it's so, it can be confusing sometimes when we think, well, does, what, there's an old law, there's a new law. How do we navigate like, through being a new believer but repenting? It, it can be so confusing sometimes. I want to read you all scripture in Romans. It says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, you... Who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law that does not commit adultery when she remarries. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. I like how Paul makes it clear to us. We're like, well, okay. (laughs) You read that first part and you're like, okay. 
He says, here's the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, again, this born again idea, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. See, what Paul is pretty much saying is that in Christ, it's not it's not no longer about don't do this, don't do that. But it's more about look at all the things that you can do for God rather than all the things that you can't do for pleasure. Does that make sense? He's saying you are no longer bowed by the the do's and don'ts, but that you are free in Christ. But in this new marriage of Christ, there's a new heart with new desires. And so he's literally telling us because of the death of Jesus, we, just like it says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son so that we would not perish, but have life in Christ, that he came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And see, us as Christians, we are no better than any sinner on the street, right? Just because we made it here to Easter Sunday doesn't make us better than anybody that slept in bed, right? See, we're not better than anybody else, but we, we have this new marriage in Christ where he's bringing us along. The more that we closely grip to the rope of Jesus, the more that we are, are secure in the sinking hole of the world and sin. Everyone is in this quicksand and it's slipping away. We're no better at, we're, we're all sinking. We're no, there's nothing within us that makes us, gives us a supernatural ability to not sink. It's a simple fact that the tighter we cling to Jesus is, the, is how tightly secured is our salvation. Does that make sense? So we're not, again, this idea that Paul gives is, don't, don't be so focused on your behavior, but give birth to this new marriage of belief. We've been dead to the marriage of behavior, and now we're married to, be, uh, to belief. I, I asked some kids at uh, high school the other day when I was going for uh, Youth for Christ, and I asked the kids, what, what is stopping you from really putting your trust in Jesus? What is stopping you from resting in him? And I said, well, it's like the, you know, just the idea of being able to, like not being able to stop everything. And I said, well, if I told you that it's not about anything that you do, but it's about your belief, would you feel a lot more easy to settle into God? So, oh yeah. If I didn't, if I wasn't bound by, if I could do whatever I want, then I would. I was like, well, I'm not telling you to do whatever you want, but <laughs> I'm just telling you that it starts at belief and this whole idea of being born again in this new life is that when you start at belief, the behavior will naturally follow and it's not even out of your own efforts. Y'all dig what I'm saying? It, the, don't get me wrong. Sin is not a healthy thing for our lives. But when you just simply focus on following after God, the rest just settles in. 
If, you, if you've ever tried it yourself where you're just thinking like, oh, I don't want to mess up, I don't want to mess up, you eventually mess up, right? And then you feel guilty. Then you run away from God. But when you understand how powerful this, this Jesus is, there's nothing that, that intimidated him before when he first died on the cross for us. Now, this is the last point on life. Is I feel like going through life is best compared to like a voyage that we're all trying to navigate through, right? And it made me think about this time in the book of Acts when Paul was on a boat going to Rome. And Paul tells everybody, if we go down this this route, we're going to be shipwrecked and it's going to be very, very difficult, even death. And they say, well, you're a prisoner, so we're not going to listen to you. (laughs) And so... They end up going in this part of the story, Acts chapter 27, verse 33 through 38 says, just as the day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You have been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks. He said, please eat something now for your own good for not a hair on your heads will be, will perish. Then he took some bread, gave thanks to God before them all and broke off a piece and ate it. Then everyone was encouraged and began to eat all 276 of us who were aboard after eating The crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. So what Paul pretty much tells them a little bit before this, he says, an angel came to me last night and said, you're going to get to Rome. Don't worry. And just because of you being on the ship, God is going to save everybody else. No one's going to die. That's an awesome promise, right? I would feel super encouraged. And yet it says that they still threw overboard all the wheat, all the excess weight. And see, it's like they already knew that they had the victory. It's like us as Christians, we know that we're saved, but we still got to go through the motions, you know? It doesn't mean that we just like, well, if we're all going to be okay, we don't need to do anything else on the boat. They still did whatever they could so that they wouldn't be their own, uh, their own faults for making that promise invalid. And so again, like I'm saying this, we, we're alive in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. It doesn't mean that we should indulge in every sinful pleasure that we can. We should have it in our minds that we, want to, that we have a lifestyle of repentance by throwing out the excess in our lives, but that we have to know 100% that not a hair on our head will perish because we trust in Christ. Does that make sense? Someone say, I dig that. So let's talk about death. 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 Let's just start with Jesus crucified. Jesus crucified. It says, I'm going to read through the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And I'm going to start, I'm going to just play it through through a couple different gospels, but it's going to be consecutive. It says, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. The soldiers forced him to help carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. I want us to stop real quick. I want us to really look at what we're reading. In just one sentence, they nailed Jesus to the cross. I want you to get that, that image in your head. It, it wasn't a simple thing. It was an agonizing thing. And 
what's, what's meaningful about this is right before it says that they offered him wine drugged with myrrh. Myrrh was a narcotic that they would give to those being crucified because of how excruciatingly painful it was. They would give this drug to numb the pain. And it says that Jesus refuses it. That he refuses something that would make the pain he was suffering less. And so many people have looked at this and saw that Jesus was not taking any shortcuts when it came to bearing the sins of the world. That he went through every ounce of pain to suffice the judgment of the world by being the sacrifice for it. And even this place being the place of the skull, some people believe that this is a place where Goliath's head was buried. But whatever it is, it's significant because in Genesis, it's, it's prophesied that the seed of Eve, that he would crush the serpent's skull while the serpent would bite its heel. And it's the image of the cross and how the devil's finally defeated as Jesus' heels is shot into the earth through the cross right over the skull, right over the head of the devil, defeating him. It was with a price. It says that they crucified Jesus, that they crucified. So, so many times people think it's the hands that they would put the nails into. But a lot of people believe that the way that the Romans would crucify is that they would nail on their wrists. So that, because with their hands, they would rip from their, their body weight would rip through their hand. But the bone from their wrist would be strong enough to hold it in place. And it says that they divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning, just, just like over there in Sri Lanka. It was 845 when the first bomb blew off. When they crucified him, a sign announced the charge against him and it read... The king of the Jews and two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. At noon, we're jumping down a couple verses. It says at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. So you're looking at from nine in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon that Jesus is hanging there. And for those of y'all who don't know, the way that the crucifixion would operate is that as their arms are spread across the cross, their feet are also nailed in one over another. And there's not a stand that they're standing on this whole time. They're actually being, uh, they're supporting themselves with that nail in their feet. So here Jesus is in order to breathe, to open up his lungs because of how stretched out their arms were because of the position that they would actually have to lift up on the nail on their feet for their lungs to be able to expand and take a breath. So imagine from, from nine in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon, and he's just going through this excruciating pain just to breathe. Every breath that he takes is excruciating pain. And it's, if you've ever read this part of the story, that's why it says, at the end, just they wanted to take the bodies down because it was Passover. 
And it said that they broke the legs of the criminals to the right and left of Jesus. But then they saw that Jesus had already died. The reason that they would break their legs was so that they could suffocate. If their legs were broken, they could no longer hold themselves up. And so they would suffocate as they dropped. And it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was a day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day which was the Sabbath. And this was a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. You know, there's a, there's another gospel where it says how how this part where he screams out, Eloi, Eloi, sabachthani. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And when you read that alone, it's, it's already significant. But he's actually quoting a verse in Psalms. And Psalms 22 is a prophetic verse of the coming Messiah. And it was written a thousand years before crucifixion was ever invented by the Romans. In Psalm 22, it starts off, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They have pierced my hands and my feet. My tongue clings to my mouth, to the roof of my mouth. My skin is like sun-baked clay. And it describes the crucifixion to a T. It says that they divided my garments before me cast lots for my clothes. And here, this psalm is written a thousand years before crucifixion was ever invented. A lot of times we don't understand the powerful connection in Scripture. Just, under, just the simplicity of the cross is enough. But there's so much prophetic word and prophetic connection to Jesus being the Messiah if you've ever heard before, he's referenced to being the Passover lamb. See, there's a connection. We just read how this time that Jesus is crucified, that it's the Passover week. And that they wanted to be prepared for a Passover, a very spiritual ritual. Passover originated back when Moses first delivered the people from Egypt. Actually, better, better yet, Moses was used to deliver the pe- people of Egypt. And let me just read you all scripture real quick. In, e- in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 through 13, it says, On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorpost will serve as a sign marking the house where you are staying. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the final plague across of Egypt. It was the, the striking down of the firstborn son. And the Bible talks about how the, what the people of Israel had to do in order for the angel of judgment to not strike down their child, to not pass judgment over them so that they would not die, is that they would sacrifice the firstborn lamb, a, a baby lamb. And that this lamb was signified of being innocent, innocent blood, and it says that even in that time, that they, before the Passover, that week, that they would have the lamb in their home so that they would become emotionally connected to it. And so that when they sacrificed it, it wasn't just some filthy animal, but it was something that they got a connection to. And it's the blood of the lamb they would use to wipe the posts of the door. And that the father of the house would usually do that. And... Whenever the, the blood was on the doorpost done by the father, it showed that that home was safe, that that home was free of judgment. And in the same way that the, a doorpost, if you notice, it's an exclusive thing, a door. It means if you look at a home in the front door, the symbol is very exclusive if you were to just wipe it on the doorpost. Only the people of that home are under that doorpost. Y'all follow me? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he was an innocent man, the son of God, and his blood was painted all over this door, this doorpost. Except this doorpost wasn't exclusive to one home. The cross is a perfect illustration of an inverted doorpost. If you were to invert a doorpost, do the opposite of what a door is. It's a symbol of the cross. While doorpost is exclusive, the cross is inclusive, meaning that it's open for everybody. And it was our Heavenly Father that painted the blood over this doorpost. He did it for us so that judgment wouldn't pass on to those who look at that doorpost. And... We have to understand how powerful and how meaningful the cross really is. Because it's so easy for us to just get confused and think that it's just a day of festivities. It's just a day of fun and colors. But it is such a morbid day. It's a brutal day. To the point where, did you know that how I just read a little bit ago that that sponge that they gave to Jesus? It how they put it up to his lips and he tasted it. He said, I thirst. And he was thirsting for his father's presence. And right after they gave him this sponge, he let out his last breath. That sponge, the reason why, if you read in other gospels, it said that they mocked him with the sponge. Well, you think it's been like a confusing thing for a lot of theologians to say, well, why is it mockery if they're offering him something to drink? Some people are confused whether it's mockery or mercy. But that sponge, what they used that sponge for is believed that is the same sponge that they would use in, in the bathroom, the latrines. They didn't have toilet paper back then, and so they would use sponges to wipe themselves. And this is a sponge 
that was used to offer Jesus something to drink. That's why they're laughing at it while they're offering it to him. See, they gave every shameful thing to him. Every brutality they offered to Jesus and he took it for us. And I, it, there's so many people that, that, that wonder, why did Jesus say that he was thirsty if he knew that was going to happen? He refused the first drink of myrrh. Why would he offer, get asked for the second one? No one usually drank that one. Because he was willing to take, that's that moment where he took all of our shame. Say, I want every shameful thing, every dirty thing that you think you have to hide from me, I'll take it. I'll drink it. He took every ounce for us. And it is a meaningful thing to understand what Jesus did for you. All of it. To know that not one part of him is afraid of what you have to offer. And I feel like all of us can relate to that last cry he gives, crying out for his father. As he cries out for his father, it's like all he wanted after all that was God's presence, his father to be there. And I don't know anyone's relationship with their father, but there's a lot of people that have father issues, father wounds. And even if you have a good father... The moments that you didn't know what to do and you just want to call your dad. I used to not have a good relationship with my dad. Now I do because of God's goodness. And there's times where I have no idea what to do. Times where I've, I've had people just tell me uh, horrible things, made me feel like I, I was nothing. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I just thought, I need to just call my dad. I just need to, I just need to hear something from him. I feel like when Jesus cries out... He, For his heavenly father. It's like all of our souls have that same cry within us. Even when I talk to to people who hate God, who are atheists, and they they claim that they don't believe in God. After talking to them, it's so clear to see that they have a hatred against God because they felt like he wasn't there when they needed him. It's not even a, a disbelief. It's just an anger because their souls are crying out for God's presence and they don't know how to get how to get it. I want us to all bow our heads and close our eyes. I believe that here right now, there's some of you that have that same cry in your soul. A cry for your father, your heavenly father. And the reason we went through so many details of the cross is to show how meaningful it is how important it is. And if you're here today and you're ready to accept that sacrifice Jesus made so that you can connect to your heavenly father with every eye closed and head bowed, I want you to just raise your hand. I see your hands. I want you to pray this prayer after me. If you rose your hand or if you've already given your life to Christ, repeat it to as a reaffirmation of your faith. Say, Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. Because you made a sacrifice for me. You are worthy. And because of what you've done, you've made me worthy. I put my trust in you. My faith in you. Because I believe you died on the cross. You took my shame. 
You took my punishment on the cross. I believe you died and I believe you rose from the dead. I celebrate you and I want to celebrate you in my life. In Jesus' name. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.